0: Good morning to the remnant of the remnant, those who made it on Sunday, of Memorial Day weekend. Let's go before the Lord this morning and uh, resume uh, our study together. We'll be uh, again today in the book of Isaiah. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's uh, direction as we look at uh, his word and his character this morning. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you um, for your hand in our lives, Lord God, for the ways that you have called us to salvation you have chosen to um, free us from your wrath and to deliver us, Lord God. We pray that as a people, we would recognize your hand in saving us, your hand in delivering us, your hand in establishing um, establishing us as your people. We pray that this morning, Lord God, in looking at your word, we can identify um, areas in our life where we have not yielded ourselves to your holiness, that we have not yielded ourselves, Lord God, um, to give you the rightful place that you deserve in our lives. We pray that you would um, convict us and sanctify us, through your word, which is true, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to recap real briefly, for those of you who are joining us this week. We're on week three, um, looking at the biblical theology of Babylon. And when I say Babylon, I also mean to say Assyria and Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. And what we're looking at, uh, kind of as a survey, if you will, of the major prophets, is how God uses kings and kingdoms to point out his character to deal with and discipline his people, and ultimately to allow us as his people to understand who he is. So last week we looked at um, King Hezekiah being saved from Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, and how God intervened in that situation to save and deliver Hezekiah. We're going to continue this week uh, in the book of Isaiah. We're in a unique portion of Isaiah in chapters 36-36. 37, 38, and 39, which serve as a historical narrative in the middle of a prophetic book. And this historical narrative is unique and gives us some incredible insights in, how, in terms of how God interacted with his people, both to discipline them and also to preserve them and to prepare them to see him act on their behalf, as we know our God to do. We're going to recap. We're going to spend time in Isaiah today and also look at some parallel texts primarily in 2 Chronicles, chapter 32. If you could turn with me, we're going to allow the chronicler to summarize what we learned last week and get us caught up with this week's lesson. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles, chapter 32. I'm going to read for you from verses 20 through 23. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed be- because of this, because of the, S- the Syrian threat, and they cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and the commanders and the officers and the king of the camp of As- in the camp of the king of Assyria and so he returned with shame on his face to his own land and when he came into the house of his god some of his own sons struck him down there with a sword so the lord saved hezekiah and the inhabitants of jerusalem from the hand of senecherib king of assyria and from the hand of all his enemies and he provided for them on every side and many brought gifts to the lord to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all the nations from that time onward. That's an amazing summary of how we saw God save his people last week. We see, and uh, I appreciate Brother Calvani pointing out a really remarkable thing about that account that we saw. It was the angel of the Lord that acted and struck down 185,000 Assyrian troops, that account, by um, the understanding of many theologians, is that that angel of the Lord is a, is a Christophany. It's an appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, acting to save his people. We see that angel strike down the army, and we see Sennacherib then turn tail and run back from where he came. The book of Isaiah shows that God spoke, and he said, I'll put a hook in his nose, and I'll lead him back by the way he came. So as we look at these kingdoms and these instruments, we see that God has absolute sovereignty over the situation. If we boil that down and and put it in the context of our lives as believers, what we see is that Hezekiah couldn't put 2,000 riders on the horses that the Assyrians were offering. He had no army. So the Lord of hosts, which is a term unique to uh, the book of Isaiah in many ways, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies, acts... On behalf of his people, and he saves Jerusalem, saves King Hezekiah, and thwarts those enemy attempts. Now remember, and this is really important, that that enemy king was deputized by God to march and take 46 fortified cities. He could take Samaria. He could take Damascus. He could take the the villages of Judah, but he could not take Jerusalem. And that's a remarkable thing because what we see there is God's salvation. God saved Hezekiah saved Jerusalem from his own wrath. It was God's wrath that allowed that enemy uh, force to have those military victories. That's important to have in view. God saves us. God saves his people first and foremost from his wrath. We also see God delivering Hezekiah in a temporal sense um, from that particular enemy. And so we've seen God deliver, and we know in our lives as believers that we're constantly being delivered from different situations, from different temptations, from different attacks. So we've seen God do this, on behalf of his people, on behalf of Hezekiah. That gives us a little context. Now that we've seen God's salvation at work, God's deliverance at work, today we're going to, as we move into seeing our first glimpses of this Babylonian force rising, we're going to see God also do a miraculous healing. Let's go to um, Isaiah chapter 38. We know now that Hezekiah has gained some great fame the local military reporters are writing about this great victory that Hezekiah had and how the Assyrians turned tail and went back the way they came. And uh, people are um, aware of Hezekiah's position as having in, its, in, in their own way defying the, the hand of the Assyrian king. And now in chapter 38, we're going to see that Hezekiah has a new ordeal, a very personal trial to go through. Starting with verse 1, In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. and He said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the ten steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. Stop there as we move into another remarkable prayer. We had uh, the opportunity to look at a prayer of Hezekiah last last week as he prayed and asked the Lord to save him from the Assyrians. And now we're about to see Hezekiah offer another prayer up to the Lord, a prayer of thanksgiving for having been healed. Hezekiah is being told by the Lord through Isaiah, that he's going to die. Set your house in order, game over, you're done. Hezekiah cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, heal me, restore my body. I, I want to be your servant. And God does that and supernaturally heals Hezekiah and grants him another 15 years to his life. Now, as we look back at last week, we know that God alone saves us from his wrath. God alone is capable to deliver his people from trials. We also have to recognize in this passage that God alone is capable of performing healing. During uh, my time in Honduras, it was remarkable to me how a certain believer, a certain brother would come to church every morning, and every Sunday he would thank God for the same thing. It almost seemed repetitive. He would thank God for his life every Sunday. God, thanks for the breath in my lungs this morning. Why does he always pray the same thing? But his life was uh, filled with, you know, violence and and um, death and, and all of those things. And his recognition was that God is the one who puts the breath in our lungs. And how quickly do we forget that? So as Hezekiah prays this prayer, he has in full view that God alone is capable of providing this healing. Let's look at his prayer together. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said... In the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my breath o oh, restore me to health and make me live behold it was for my welfare that i had great bitterness but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction for you have cast all my sins behind your back for shield does not thank you death does not praise you those who go down into the pit do not hope for your faithfulness the living the living he thanks you as i do this day the father makes known to his children your faithfulness The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? What an amazing prayer of thanksgiving to the God who healed Hezekiah, to the God who forgave Hezekiah, for the God who allowed... Hezekiah had this new lease on life, these 15 years of continuing in the role of king and in the position of blessing that God had uniquely given to Hezekiah. I love the fact that Hezekiah rightfully recognizes, look, if I'm dead, I'm not able to sing your praises, but you're giving me life so that I can use each day that I live to sing God's praises. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down into the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. What an amazing opportunity now that Hezekiah has to spend the rest of his 15 years praising God for the salvation, for the deliverance, and the healing that only comes from God's hand. Wouldn't it be nice if the story ended there and we understood that that's exactly what Hezekiah did? Unfortunately, everything in God's word allows us to see God's holy character and also the imperfect character of his instruments, of his people, in clarity, so much clarity that we see this particular story that we're now going to study together in Isaiah chapter 39 in three different places in scripture. There are three different accounts for this in 2 Kings, in 2 Chronicles, and also in Isaiah 39. What we're going to see here now is that Hezekiah has gained renown for sending the Assyrians packing. He's gained renown for being remarkably healed He's gained renown for accumulating wealth and treasure that's second only to that of Solomon. And he's gained this fame. And so now, Hezekiah is being sought out. As we've talked about from the first, uh, the first week, the time of, of Mesopotamia and all the way into Israel and Judah is in tumult. There's rising powers and there's alliances against those powers and everybody wants to overthrow the Assyrians. And so there's these alliances being formed, and that's where we're going we're gonna to see that now everybody wants to buddy up with Hezekiah because, you know, Hezekiah's got this military prowess, right? So let's look at chapter 39 together. At that time, merodach Balan, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoy- envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory and all that was in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet, came to Hezekiah and said to him, "What did these men say? And where do they come from to you? And where did they come to you? From where did they come to you?" Hezekiah said, "They have come to me from a faraway country, from Babylon." He said. What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Verse 1 tells us who this visitor is and who's being sent. As we learned, the word Merodach is Hebrew for Marduk, the pagan god of Babylon. So this king is a pagan god. History tells us some interesting things about this king of Babylon. He was likely on the throne of Babylon for 11 years he would have been a vassal under the Assyrian Empire, under the Assyrian Emperor. So he would have had to pay tribute to keep his chair. He organized a little bit of a revolt against Sargon II of Assyria, got himself kicked off the throne, and likely it's at this time where he's um, a, a king with without a kingdom looking to make friends to overthrow these Assyrians. And so he comes under this guise to bring a get well present and a congratulations present to Hezekiah and hear about Hezekiah's victories and to form a bit of an alliance. But of course, with an underlying agenda. And that's what we'll see. And all of this is beginning to see Babylon being built up. And again, for those of you who have the ESV study Bible, there's a comment in here about Babylon and it's worth looking at. It says, Babylon represents everything in this world that is humanly impressive and opposed to God. So it's with that context that this friend, this ally, this king comes to visit Hezekiah. He comes in and Hezekiah welcomes him gladly and says, yeah, let me show you the wealth that we've accumulated here. Let me tell you about how we uh, sent the Assyrians packing. Let me tell you about how I've been healed. And instead of responding with that same prayerful attitude that we see in chapter 38, where he sings God's praises, He's tempted very quickly to begin tooting his own horn. How quickly does that that pride, that um, forgetfulness of what God has done on our behalf, creep into our lives? There's some amazing application that we're going to look at in this together. He shows them everything. He shows them everything. It's not just he greets them at the door. He lets them in, and he shows them all of his treasure, all of his weakness, thinking that this is a friend. But Babylon's not our friend. Babylon comes humanly impressive, opposed to the Lord. And I think on the slide, um, we have a comment here that Babylon exploits our pride with flattery. The enemy comes and exploits our pride with flattery and offers us a false hope of contingency plans. Um, Hezekiah knows that Assyria is still very much a threat, so it can't hurt to have another alliance. Let's make friends with the Assyrians, right? We saw the king of Assyria tell Hezekiah, you can't trust Egypt. They're not your friends, right? And so now we see Hezekiah poised to begin creating other alliances. And the world wants to do that with us, wants us to put a trust in something something other than our holy God that saves and delivers us. We also see that in all of this, Hezekiah's... Um, tempted to forget the consequences of his actions. And he just lets in the, the uh, what will be an enemy and shows them everything. Let's go ahead. Um, if we could advance a couple of slides, please. The uh, slide has a quote on there about uh, Babylon representing everything that's humanly impressive. Thank you. Keep that in view. And then actually, let's go back one. We're going to continue in... Um, Verse, in chapter 39, to, to look at what God is doing and what's the significance of this Babylonian envoy. So we see that Hezekiah is showing all of his uh, treasure. He's showing everything. He has the courage to at least tell the prophet Isaiah with honesty that there was nothing that he held back, there was nothing that he didn't show them. And now in verse 5, we're going to see that Isaiah has a message from the Lord responding to the decision that Hezekiah made to let in these Babylonian envoys. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. And this, again, is a really significant term for referring to our God. He is the God of armies. He's the God that put the the angel of the Lord there to strike down the 185,000 troops. Left to himself, Hezekiah had no army to fight with. So this God of armies, the God of Israel's army, says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days that are coming, when all that is in your house, all that your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons, who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, there will p- be peace and security in my days. Those are strong words from the Lord to Isaiah. The beautiful thing that we see in, this, in the book of Isaiah is that, as we talked about, there's a great deal of predictive prophecy in this book. We see God present the Assyrians as a disciplinary force to come against Israel, to come against Judah. We see God save from Assyria. We see God bringing uh, up Babylon in power. And then God says, because of this sort of pride, because of this sort of failure to remember that I alone am your Savior, that I am alone in your deliverer, and I am alone in your healer, there will be a consequence. And he predicts all that we're going to see later uh, in the books of uh, Jeremiah and and just a moment here in the first chapter of Daniel. And all of these things are foretold. It's amazing that God has allowed all of these things to show His character and to allow us as His people to be fairly warned that we can recognize only God as our Savior, as our Deliverer, and as our Healer. There's a couple of New Testament examples that uh, allow us to understand that God's people are quick to forget His role. Uh, One account that comes to mind is in um, the book of Matthew. We see Peter, good old Peter, who was blessed by the Lord for recognizing with clarity that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ. Blessed are you, Peter, because God alone has revealed this to you, right? But in Matthew chapter 26, we see Peter lose sight of who is his deliverer, who is his savior, We know that Peter is told by Christ that um, he will deny him. And we know that Peter said, no, 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 like Hezekiah, I will always sing your praises. I will always stay by your side. Verse 30 of Matthew chapter 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they fall away because of you, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The response of God's people in quickly forgetting their Savior is so evident in this account. I also am amazed by how m- times we see God intervene in people's health and people's um, restoration of health and, and how they're, they're quick to thank God but can quickly lose sight of what God has done. And in Luke chapter 17, there's a really unique account of Christ encountering the lepers. Luke chapter 17, verse 11 and through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And in that account, too, we see that only one of those ten that was healed responded with um, a remembrance and a gratitude to Christ for that unique healing that he was given. God requires that he be honored as our Savior, as our deliverer, and as our healer. Going back to Isaiah chapter thirty-nine, there's a few things that I want us to look at together, so that we can understand how God is faithful n- not only to save and deliver, but also to enforce consequences. He talks about what's going to happen to all of the treasure that Hezekiah has got. The treasure actually of uh, Solomon would have been passed on through the from one king to another, and so Hezekiah would have accumulated uh, a great treasure chest of vessels and of um, gold and of silver and of all of these things that God allowed him to have. And and those things, we need to keep our eye on them because we're going to see those throughout texts where God brings to fruition the punishment that he will apply to Hezekiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. God promises that. Now if you look at the text there, you see that Hezekiah identifies Babylon as a faraway country. He receives the envoys, and he doesn't detect the threat. He doesn't see the threat, what's coming, what's ahead. And so Isaiah spells it out. All your treasure, everything you just did in your little arrogant show and tell, it's all getting moved east. It's all going back to Babylon with them. And we'll see that. We'll see those vessels show up again in the books of Jeremiah and of Ezra and of Nehemiah and even in Daniel. The treasure that Hezekiah accumulated, it'll all be carried away. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, whom will come with you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Let's go um, to the parallel account of this. Because the chronicler does a great job of editorializing in such a way that we understand God's response to what Hezekiah is doing. Let's go to... um, Second Chronicles chapter thirty-two, just beneath where we uh, where we started reading, and the chronicler gives us some very unique perspectives on what God is doing to Hezekiah, and and ministering through the prophet Isaiah. Verse twenty-four, Second Chronicles thirty-two. In those days, Hezekiah became sick, and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart, his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. For he had made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself, and flocks, and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed up the upper outlet of the waters of the Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. What an interesting account. The same narrative that we see in Isaiah, we see here in Chronicles Chronicles was likely written um, post-exilic, so as the people of Judah came back out of Babylon, they had um, certainly seen how the Babylonians were great at writing historical accounts, were very good at documentation and amassing huge libraries, and so the people of Judah began to organize these accounts and write down and explain what had happened in their history. And so the chronicler tells the story, and it's not just factual accounts of how Hezekiah responds to these envoys, but there's some colorful narrative in here. Verse 25, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was pride, was proud. That expression, did not make return, has a cross-reference that's uh, worth looking at together in Psalm 116. Psalm chapter 116, we see the psalmist respond in recognition to God's salvation in his life. I'm going to read just a portion of this this psalm of salvation, um, verses 12, 13, and 14. The rhetorical question, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What a great question for us to apply to our lives. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? All his benefits, the salvation, the deliverance, the healing, um, all of the blessings that we have in our life, those are all due to Christ, our Savior. And so this question is, what shall I render to the Lord for all all the benefits to me. And the cross-reference in that text that we just looked at in 2 Chronicles was, Hezekiah failed to keep that question in mind. He went right past singing God's praises that he said he was going to do the rest of his life, right? And he goes into this pride. Look at that. These people have traveled all this way to hear how great I am. These people have come from a faraway land because they'd like to to buddy up with me because I've got something to offer. And so God responds to that pride. God responds to that with punishment. If we skip ahead in Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 31, also gives us some colorful narrative. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. This is Sanctification. This is testing, and it uses some covenantal language that um, God is wanting to see what is in Hezekiah's heart. If Hezekiah can keep up his end of the bargain, God has done the saving, God has done the delivering, God has done the healing. And now, Hezekiah, are you able to do your part? And we know that throughout our understanding of covenants, right, especially conditional covenants, that the covenant exists to highlight our inadequacy and our incapability to hold up our end of the deal. So not surprisingly, Hezekiah doesn't do that so well. There's a cross-reference here, too, to Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God explains this idea of testing and highlighting our inability as his holy people to keep up our end of the covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God does that with his people. He wants us to recognize his holiness, his supreme capability to save us from his wrath through Jesus Christ. He wants to deliver us from situations. He wants to heal us. And he wants to do all of those things for his renown and to show that there's nothing that we can add to that. We know that the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ is through Christ alone. There's nothing we can add to. We know that as a people, we have been set apart and that there is nothing that can be done to pluck us from his hand. And so God remarkably uses Hezekiah's life to show that in spite of God keeping his covenant faithfully, his people will continue to fall short and to flounder. God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. God was gracious, remarkably gracious, to Hezekiah in that the full weight of the consequences of his pride didn't happen during Hezekiah's life. God, in His grace, chose to hold off some of those consequences. I can't, for the life of me, understand what Hezekiah said. Well, glad I dodged that bullet, but it's going to be somebody else's problem. I don't understand how that could be Hezekiah's response, but that was Hezekiah's response. It's not going to happen in my lifetime, but you know what? Everything that God promised to Hezekiah did happen. I'd like to go to Daniel chapter 1 with you. And in the book of Daniel, we see that, uh, we know that the first of the exiles had been taken from Jerusalem into Babylon, and this first wave of of captives are being taken, and this is a fulfillment of God's promise to Hezekiah. Look what we see here, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It's worth mentioning here that Jehoiakim would have been the grandson of Hezekiah, there was Manasseh, There is uh, Josiah, actually he would have been the great-grandson, but when we see in Isaiah chapter 39 that he says, some of your own sons are being taken into Babylon, here we see one of the, the sons, one of the offspring of Hezekiah being taken into Babylon, just exactly as God had promised. So in this third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring him some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to go and stand before the king. And of course, we know these guys, right? And among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. That intro to the book of Daniel shows us with crystal clarity how God executed the exact sentence that he told Hezekiah he's going to do. Your son, some of your own blood will be brought into Babylon. The royalty of this city of Jerusalem that I've saved from the Assyrians, they're going to get hauled off to Babylon to serve as eunuchs in the court of the Babylonian king. And here we see him. They're even being taught to speak the language of the Babylonians. They're being full-on brought into captivity. And the first of the vessels from Hezekiah's storehouse get moved off in this wave, right? We see that Nebuchadnezzar takes those vessels from the house of God, from the treasury of Hezekiah, and puts them in the temple of a pagan god. That symbolism is, is incredibly powerful, and we'll see uh, as we move into Jeremiah next week that those vessels will continue to be looted and plundered and taken into Babylon, showing the, the powerful word of God coming to fruition. As we look at what we've seen here in this little portion of Isaiah, chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39, we've seen God allow mighty armies to be used to carry out his judgment, to carry out his wrath. We've seen God act on behalf of his people, sending the angel of the Lord to save from his own wrath. We've seen Hezekiah delivered, not only from an enemy troop, but also from a a health crisis. We've seen all of that happen, and we've seen God's clear message that he alone is worthy of that praise. And failure to give praise to him alone carries with it grave consequences. I want to close with this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in talking about God's interest in maintaining us as his remnant people, humble and acknowledging that he alone is our savior and our deliverance. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and on. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, and even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This morning, brothers and sisters, we boast because our Redeemer lives, our Savior has acted on our behalf, and done for us what he alone can do. We add nothing to our salvation, and praise God, he has finished that work of saving his remnant people. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we um, thank you for the vivid detail with which scripture records you acting for your renown, for your sake. You save for your sake, you deliver for your sake, you heal for your sake, so that we might sing your praises. We pray that The spirit of Hezekiah's prayer might be one that lives in us on a daily basis, that we would desire to be, uh, while you have us here in the land of the living, to sing your praises, to never stop talking about what Jesus has done for us. In those moments when we might be tempted to um, praise our own efforts or to look at what we've accomplished or what we've accumulated, may we be mindful that it is all from your hand and from your hand alone. May we be a people who, when we're visited by envoys of of the enemy of the world, Lord God, that our response would not be to flatter ourselves, Lord God, but to to exalt you and to speak quickly that it is you that have acted on our half to save us, to forgive us, and to deliver us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.